1: Hello everyone, I hope you're doing well. This is I've Never Had an Original Thought with me, Becky Lee. Welcome back for another episode. Today's episode is a juicy one. It is good. It is an educational one, so I hope you learn a lot. It is with the amazing Zay, who I met during my master's at Cambridge, and we talk all about development and the politics around it, And yeah, it's something that I'm really interested in. And obviously Zay is herself as she works in that sort of industry, but I will let her tell you about her job. Um, But I just wanted to preface this episode by saying that neither of us are obviously the authoritative voice on this. Not that you need to, like, obviously. Um, But we just want to say that obviously, as this is about, I've never had an original thought. All of our experiences and the things that we learned, especially at Cambridge and on course, have shaped the way that we think about these topics and yeah I'm inviting healthy and productive debate on these matters if you listen to the episode and you think that something was really interesting and you want to learn more please reach out or if you say hey actually you know you said this but I disagree because of x and x I'm also really open to hearing your thoughts because I love talking about this stuff um so yeah I hope you enjoyed the episode have a lovely time listening and I will see you next week Uh, no actually I'll speak to you at the end okay bye hi everyone welcome back to another episode of I've never had an original thought today I'm joined by Zay
2: hi I'm Zay spelt J but pronounced Zay um I God, what should I say about myself? Um, I met Becky during our master's at Cambridge. We did MPhil development studies together and we both really bonded over, you know, what we learn and general life in Cambridge and its wonderfulness and weirdness at times. Um, And yeah, I work in development now. And in my spare time, I do Indian dancing, and I read, and generally just music stuff. So yeah, that's me. Amazing. I'm mm-hmm. am super excited that you're joining me today, because
1: I tell everyone this, you are one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life.
2: <laughs> that is just, is you've always said this, and you're much too kind. I don't know why you think this, but it's, it's very nice of you. But you are also incredibly clever, oh. Becky. We swapped essays, what, at the <laughs> end of the middle and the end of the year, we read each other's essays. So I know some of your deep academic, you know mine, so. (laughs) You know that I have a trouble with writing too long of a sentence. Oh, we've all been there, honestly. I think everyone has one thing. I I use the word inherently way too much. That's my (laughs) topic in essays, honestly. (laughs) Perfect, well, the question I ask everyone is who or
1: what is maybe one person, idea or event that has changed the way that you see the world recently?
2: recently well, so I did, in general or in general um well I was gonna say I was gonna say um going to Cambridge but actually I think we're probably gonna talk a bit about Cambridge later so um I'll turn it down a bit because I could say something like really deep and and sad but I don't want to do that because I'm in a really good place right now so I'm gonna say my recent trip to Albania uh, I went with Sandy, who you know um she's a good friend from from Wolfson and at Cambridge And um, I'd just been through a really, really hard time, went through a horrible breakup. Uh, My parents split up this year and I was just in a bad place. And then we just randomly booked a trip to Albania, like who goes to Albania? And that's kind of where we went. And it's just one of these places where it's enough on the tourist trail that you feel like quite safe going through and doing your traveling thing. But it's enough off it that it's just you're there and you learn and meet new people that you would never otherwise have met. And I think there's something really nice about meeting continually people who are nothing like you to remind yourself of your own like freedom your own choices and ultimately the like level of control that you have over your own life which I'm very lucky to have and I know that not everyone has that so just being in that place and being like wow you know I've been so sad but look at what I can just do and look at the random people who I can just meet and who have taken such different journeys to me and you know if I wanted to take a different journey just like that then maybe I could so yeah that's amazing that
1: is such a good answer (laughs) yeah. <laughs> and also when I, I remember when I saw your like Instagram stories and it was like tagged for Albania I was thinking yeah. that's a, that's an interesting choice you know Most people <laughs> go to like Mallorca I don't
2: know no, no. I, I really wanted to pick somewhere which I knew nothing about and we just turned up and we were like I remember stepping off the plane with Sansi, we just looked at each other being like what where are we like what is this, <laughs> this is it's not, not like anywhere <laughs> else I've been um but yeah this is lovely we did it It was very safe if anyone wants to go to Albania like we hitchhiked which I would not feel safe doing in many countries but Albania I'd really recommend to just I don't know I don't know, have a quick trip away and remember that there's other things out there other parts out there
1: that's exciting that's going on my bucket list for sure <laughs> um, <laughs> so you touched on this a little bit that we met at Cambridge, um, mm-hmm. but obviously I did my masters there. Um, but you also did your undergrad there, and I just want to start like, how did you find going to Cambridge? Was that something that kind of, as you said, changed the way that you saw the world? You went to quite a prestigious college, quite an old college. Why don't you just go into that?
2: Yeah, um, I mean it's a big it's a big question, um, and I definitely do think Cambridge uh, changed the way that I viewed everything myself the world I think I came in as quite as in everyone goes to uni quite naive like they think oh this is going to be the best experience of my life I'm going to have these great friends for all this freedom I'm going to drink it's going to be great and there was all that obviously but I think I came in quite naive like um this is quite a I don't know a political answer but um I came in from like a grammar school where everyone there really wanted to work they worked hard but they didn't necessarily come from privileged backgrounds Mm. and You know, I had worked hard along with like a lot lot of, I I mean, the grammar school system doesn't work for everyone, but it worked for me. And I kind of went to Cambridge thinking that everyone would be like that, you know, from all kinds of different backgrounds. But, you know, at the end of the day, clever, hardworking, and that's why they were there. And then I turned up (laughs) and it's not quite like that, Um, as you might expect. And I think it was probably very naive for me to think that it would just be like, you know, people who are just like nerds. But it represents a lot more than that. Um, in terms of its history, its tradition, the kind of people who are there. And I think that made it, for me, an extremely difficult experience at first, but it was so maturing for me, just going there and realising, you know, private school preps you for these kind of places. And not even just private school, but the the ways in which, like, rich people (laughs) are raised, which is just so different from, you know, other other people who turn up to Cambridge and expect you know maybe something similar to what I was expecting like it just makes it very difficult when you've got in all of your supervisions um big like rugby playing blonde boys who can can just make up bullshit out of thin air and come across as really clever and they just they scare you. you you just sit there being like why why am I here you get imposter syndrome that's what everyone calls it um and then you know you you stay well I I stayed I stuck it out because a lot of people drop out in the first term at undergrad oh do they is, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I I remember on my corridor, there were like 20 of us. And then by the end of the term, there were 15, which is, yeah, it's it's a lot in one corridor. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I I stuck it out. I always knew that I would stick it it out, even if I hated it. And I learned to love it because you soon realize that a lot of what these like posh boys are saying is quite empty. It can be quite empty. I'm not saying that like all of the people who went to private school chat shit, because obviously a lot of them are also incredibly clever. But there's a lot of people who just know what to say and how to say it. And it's not something that everyone gets taught. And I think not knowing that, turning up and not knowing that can make you feel very isolated. And I think more people feel that than than say that they do. So yeah, it was just a huge learning experience for me when you realize what kind of people run the world and where they're educated and how they all know each other. It's kind of scary. And then at the end of the day, I've kind of benefited from it because I've I've known them too and I have all these new contacts well I would never I don't want to go into any of the places that they rule but (laughs) it's just it's weird like coming in as an outsider and coming out and still feeling like an outsider but not being able to claim it because obviously you've benefited from that same system that they have so yeah it was was weird yeah do you think that like
1: obviously when did you start your undergrad 2017? 2017 yeah. So obviously you were there for four years. Did you see any change over the four years or do you think like the undergrads entering this coming October might be just experiencing the same thing?
2: It's really hard to say. I think um, things change quite quickly. I mean one of the things I don't know if how much you know about this Becky but um, because it's not really a thing so much as masters but uh, drinking societies are a big thing. Okay. no, it's really, I really struggle to explain them, but they're kind of like um, fraternities and sororities in the US, but yeah. with like a distinctly like old world. Well, I mean, fraternities and sororities have that too with the whole like Latin things and yeah. the, um, what they called initiation ceremonies and stuff. And it's, it's kind of like that. Um, but you don't really consider it as a thing in like in the UK. Um, and they can be quite elitist, like... Um, there was one college, won't name names, <laughs> that had a fine dining drinking society. And what people would do would go out, would be um, to go out for like five course meals and like do stuff like eat them backwards and then just like uh, drink a lot of champagne. The meals would come to like £200 each. Um, and the, the catch is that you were only invited if you went to public school. Um, and if there's any non-UK people listening, public school does not mean, like, state comprehensive school. It means the poshest of the private schools. Like, you have to pay a lot of money to go to the public schools. So, yeah, that, that was a thing. Um, uh, sorry, I can't remember the question that you asked me. Yeah. Oh, what, oh, it's the... changing. So, yes, because when I was in my first year, there was a big kind of revolt against them. And a lot of colleges took action against them. And I do think that the situation is much better now. And it, it is quite exclusive to Cambridge. I don't think Oxford has um, that in the same... I think it does, like the Bullingdon, like you hear about. But yeah, yeah. key okay and then not mainstream. But I think what shocked me about Cambridge is that they were very mainstream. But now I think they're toned down and I think the ones that do exist are a lot better. I think I just was exposed to some of the worst ones. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. I think it is moving slowly. But yeah, I think it could be moving a lot quicker.
1: Yeah, I know. I I get what you mean. It's I I think because actually, I let you talk about this. Was does the impact? Does the college that you go to have an impact on the type of experience that you have? Do you think
2: a hundred percent? Everyone, when you go to a Cambridge Open Day, they're like, oh, it doesn't matter what college you go, you end up in. You'll always, like, end up loving it. Not true. Not true. <laughs> the college really, really matters. Just in terms of things as basic as, like, price of accommodation, they don't tell you how much prices vary between colleges. Trinity is an extremely rich college, which means it subsidises a lot of its mm-hmm. accommodation, a lot of meals. It's a lot cheaper um, to go to Trinity in terms of everyday expenses. And they, they do – they have massive travel grants and stuff, mm-hmm. so you can, like – go to Bali with, like, a very um, tenuous connection to one of your modules and be like, oh, it's a research trip, and they'll do <laughs> you can go, and, like, other colleges, which are poorer, um, they don't have that. They don't have those kind of resources, and it's a lot more expensive to live there, and you'll get a much much more rubbish room. So um, there's things like that. But there's also the kind of people that different colleges attract, um, which, unfortunately, just it is a thing, mm-hmm. and I don't really know how you change it because you've got to be, like... I have no idea I have no idea really why it's the case I guess it's like some colleges are more central yeah and see more desirable pretty traditional and some are seen as more like I don't know progressive probably uglier because the buildings are newer like, yeah I don't <laughs> it does it definitely makes a massive difference I'd say
1: you know it's funny because I always thought it was ha- it's so ironic how like the people with the most privilege like suffer the least from the price of uni because if your parent can pay outright for uni you don't have to take out a loan which means you don't have to pay interest on that loan and you go through university having paid for it and someone that comes from a less well-off background takes out one a loan for their tuition and two the maximum loan that they can take for maintenance yeah has is what like forty-five thousand pounds in debt All Who together, knows? Yeah. Um, and then that
2: increases over time yeah. massively interest and they
1: were the ones that started in the least privileged position to begin with Mm -hmm. it just doesn't work (laughs) no it doesn't doesn't um but I don't want to get bogged down in that because as you said hopefully things are changing um and the main reason that I brought you on is because well I feel like maybe you're more into it than I am now because I've kind of betrayed the subject
2: (laughs) you haven't betrayed it
1: but but today's an educational podcast and we're gonna learn why poor countries are poor which is what everyone asks, and <laughs> we're going to reaffirm that colonialism is a reason in this. Oh um, yeah, because I've been told in the past that it plays no part. Which you know, we're I gonna, think that we're going to demystify
2: that today. Well, let's demystify. Let's demystify. <laughs> um,
1: but before I ask you those big questions, do you want to just chat a bit about like what you do for
0: work?
2: Yes. So um I work in international development, and. Um, This is often quite difficult to explain. Um, So if you don't know what international development is, well, the way that I work in international development, because it's quite complicated to explain what international development is, um, I work in foreign aid. So I work for an international development consultancy that delivers projects for big donors. So donors, um, we mostly work with governments. So that could be the UK foreign office. It could be the US Agency for International Development. It could be the Ministry for Foreign Affairs in Finland. Um, but there's also other donors. Yeah, I don't know. There's lots of different types of donors, basically. Um, and yeah, we implement projects for them, which means we apply for They'll say, you know, I've got this much money and I want to do this with it. What we do is we write a proposal and we say, um, OK, with this much money and if you want to do this, this is how we'll do it. Pick us to deliver your project and then they'll pick us if they like our proposal and then we'll just take it, take the money and do the project. So that's what I do.
1: Perfect. And before you started this role, did you have a perception of like, what foreign aid was like, what developing countries and doing work in developing countries would be like? And what, how has that changed?
2: Yeah, um, so I think I, I was always interested in the concept of kind of charity and international development um, because of, I guess, the disconnect with um, what I saw on TV Um, you know, how developing countries were depicted versus developing countries on the ground. So my parents are Indian. I'm a second-gen immigrant, and I've been back to India probably like 17, 18 times by now. So I was going to India, spending a lot of time in India all the way through my childhood. And then I'd come back home to the UK, and on TV, I would see the UNICEF adverts, which were, like, depicting India. And they'd be like, oh, this five-year-old girl, Swati, walks 12 miles every day to collect water from the neighbouring village, it's dirty water, she's so malnourished, help us by giving two pounds a month. It was just, I think that that disconnect, like this kind of poverty porn, as lots of people call it today, and me going to India and um, yes, people are much poorer, but to depict it like that, just sent, it always seemed very patronising to me because when I, whenever I'd mentioned to my friends or to my teachers, like I'm Indian, the immediate reaction they would have was one of poverty. And there's so much more to India. Like if you've ever been to India, you know how complex and and massive it is. It's not something that can be, I don't know, represented like that. So I've always been like vaguely interested in it. And then um, I did an internship at a commercial law firm and I had a crisis. So then I just decided to apply for this master's. And I think the way that we were taught about it was very critical. So yeah. we were told, you know, development is this. In general, it's bad because it upholds existing inequalities and we were taught how to criticise it. But the interesting thing is we were taught how to criticise it without actually being taught what it was in the first place. And in general, I think foreign aid and the way that international development in general functions is extremely opaque because I think what most people think when they think of um, foreign aid as one rich country giving money to one poor country, when actually the types of aid in the world right now are manifold, especially when you factor in new types of aid which are like semi- semi-grant um, and semi-debt, like de- semi um which is another thing that we can talk about. But um, <laughs> yeah, there's just, <laughs> there's loads of different types of uh, foreign aid. And again, I've forgotten the question you asked.
1: What was your perception of what developing countries or development work was like compared to now that you work in it?
2: Yeah, so um, I guess before I just didn't really understand what it was in terms of the nitty gritty, uh, even though I've like had experience in developing countries and I'd done a whole master's on it yeah Um, now um it's not not what i expected but i think i've learned some really really valuable things because i kind of planned to do a phd but i'm so glad that i went into work first because like my phd idea would would have been quite niche and it's actually like not what's needed Mm. because what i really realized is how far behind real life development is um in in our classes we were talking about like lgbt rights and um you know some really niche very theoretical yeah. concepts around conflict and gender we are not that far like mm. <laughs> we're so behind it when you have to fight well you don't have to fight to get gender included but you have to fight to get gender properly considered at the heart of a project and it's usually when you do get it considered it's like oh you know, we'll aim to have at least 50% women participate in this training workshop. And it's like, yeah, you you really should, because 50% of women, of people in this village are women. So why is that not happening? And yeah, when you come to nuance and all the power dynamics and stuff that we, we discussed, you do, you do discuss it um, to a certain extent, but we're just, we're really far behind where the thought leadership on it is, if that makes sense. Like it's just, there's a big gap and that might be because of money, it might be because of reluctance to change, um, but bureaucracy, I, I don't know, but for really sure.
1: I've always thought there was like a disjuncture between the theory and practice.
0: Oh, and absolutely. When I was
1: doing like work on refugees, I was like, you know, in gender theory, this and this, um, and the supervisor of the project was like, Becky, they're not thinking of gender theory, they're thinking of like how they're going to make some money. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> Sorry, but, but I got That's a very important point.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think I've kind of, I haven't become disillusioned because I think whenever you say, oh, I want to go and work in development to someone who's working in development, they're like, keep your expectations low because yeah. if you're an idealist, you're going to be trodden down. Um, so I think I, I did. I just kept my um, expectations low. I went in to learn, not to save the world. And I think that's quite important yeah. if you want to follow this because otherwise you'll run out of steam, you'll run out of stamina.
1: That made me think of another question, but I'm going to save it for the end. Okay. But what everyone wants to know, in your opinion, which I'm sure I will agree with wholeheartedly, <laughs> um, how did we get here? Why Why do we have such a global inequality? And essentially, why are developing countries or poor countries, why are they still poor?
2: What a question. So,
1: juicy. <laughs> so many different opinions on this as well.
2: Yeah I think and I think that's the most important thing to say I am not an authority on this. I don't think anyone will ever be an authority on this, although lots of people claim to be. Um, it's so complex because you're trying to you're trying to dissect why the world and why all existing structures of power have come to be where they are today. And I think we should start with um, what you Becky have already brought up colonialism. And um, I think it's very easy and a lot of people do this to when people bring up colonialism roll your eyes and be like oh it's not that simple obviously it's not that simple i don't think anyone is saying that it's that simple because yeah. colonial colonialism itself is incredibly complicated and that's the thing it's it's pretty impossible to separate such a huge historical phenomenon from the d- development trajectory of any country in the world to be honest like colonized or not um because of systems of trade like you even if you the country even if you're not colonizing or country or you have not been colonized like you're still interacting with this world system in which some countries extract from other countries and you you have to you have to participate in that but obviously you can't just say oh all the colonized countries are poor because they were colonized because you know india and like malawi were both colonized but why is india one of the fastest growing economies in the world just just isn't it's so much more complicated So you've got to consider that not in isolation. I don't think you can ever say, like, poor countries are poor because of colonialism, because technically colonialism is over. I mean, you can can make lots of arguments about neocolonialism continuing today, but the act, the actual physical ownership and, you know, official administrations and stuff are not there anymore. So then you have to think about how this massive phenomenon has interacted with other things, like... um, There's one, not one guy, there's lots of guys who talk about um, geography, which goes further back in the historical time frame. It says, like, you know, um, the UK is cold and Kenya is close, is on the equator, therefore... You know, you can make yeah. arguments like that. I don't, I've, I have not read his book recently enough to actually give you an example. But basically, environmental factors and geographical factors um, are often blamed. Like, you know, Afghanistan is very mountainous. So a lot of people cite that as a reason for it being, um, you know, difficult to invade, for one thing, but also difficult to participate in trade with other countries. Um, then you can come to, economic factors, which is so a big, big umbrella term. And that obviously involves um, trade links established by colonialism, extractive relations established by colonialism, but also the fallout of this to later on. So this would involve things like economic policy. So um, in our Masters, we were taught by um, a lovely man called Harjun Chang, who has a very big argument um, about free trade and industrial policy and the extent to which a country has developed its own manufacturing potential in its kind of route to development. Um, You can read his great, very accessible books if you're interested. But um, I think he focuses a lot on countries' own manufacturing um, abilities. So he says, you know, countries like uh, China, South Korea, East Asian tigers, um, as they're often called Um, are successful because they've done that and Africa uh, in general has not developed such a strong manufacturing industry and that's Mm -hmm. um, kind of a link that he and many other people um, draw so that's one thing Um, other economic policies and not even policies just other economic theories that are made around why countries are poor you have the natural resource curse so there's a lot of um, countries in Africa for example which have a lot of say, I don't know, diamonds or cobalt, or a very important uh, mineral that people need for um, for trading, for electronic parts or whatever. And these countries have tended to be poor despite owning, uh, or not even owning, That's the, I think that's the main mm-hmm. problem, um, having on their land some very valuable uh, commodities, which they don't process, they just sell, or you know, whoever owns the land on which they exist, yeah. sell. <laughs> And then there's other things like the middle income trap, which is um, something that uh, some theorists have said uh, countries like South Africa and Brazil fall into because um, they get rich um, by exporting something. But then, God, I don't remember this story, um Rising wages mean that they can't rely on selling cheap labor anymore. So then they get mm. stuck in this thing where they can't compete, but they can't produce more. So things like that. And then I'll end on this factor, which is just generally political, social factors, things like conflict, corruption, um, different social norms like gender inequality, things like that. There's a multitude of factors that you can blame inequality on. And I think that is a nice ending point because at the end of the day, there's not economic inequality is not just about economic inequality. There are so many different types of inequality.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row, dreaming of something better?
1: A lot can happen in three
2: years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Knitted into that. And yeah. it's really important, therefore, to look at this from an intersectional lens and realize that there is no explaining away with the one simple reason inequality it's there because of lots of reasons and exists in a lot of different ways so that's my cop-out answer (laughs) no it was an incredible answer actually
1: it was making me think about as well like for those who don't know what is what's the british approach to trying to end this inequality so like what can we do or what's being done currently
2: well (laughs) um i can answer this from an a foreign office perspective i guess kind of um, but hmm, the, the way that the UK government approaches this is very much um, from an angle of, of British interests. Mm. So even development projects now, um, very recently with the merger of the Foreign Office and the um, Department for International Development, it's now called FCDO, the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, um, we now have to justify when we design development projects, the benefits that this project will bring to British trade. Often, so there's that approach, <laughs> and you know there's another project that we have um, working with the UK Defence Council. The money comes from all over the government, and um, it's about protecting UK security interests abroad. So you know they're they they're technically you know doing good things uh, in air quotes, but the the kind of driving force behind it is not always the the most altruistic shall we say. So that is what the government is doing at the moment. And I think you can see from other like home office policies, (laughs) hello Rwanda, um, (laughs) that it's not always about just helping those in need. But I think, I think none of us are naive enough to to pretend that's true.
1: No, that's And is that primarily undertaken through foreign aid or do they have other initiatives?
2: Um, It's lots of different types of of foreign aid. So, um, as some of you will know, foreign aid has been cut from 0.7 to 0.5 of GDP. So it's less foreign aid than usual. And the way that that foreign aid gets there usually is programmatic, which means that they don't just, they don't often give money straightforwardly. I'll have to fact check this because I'm not actually sure if it's true. But from my um, understanding, they don't just give money to governments. They try not to do that so much anymore. um, Because they're this like, We've discussed it in the masters as well like a lack of trust in um in governance uh, of developing countries um so it's mostly they they fund third parties like my consultancy to deliver um projects in developing countries so this might be like uh i'll give you an example of a project that i'm working on um it's an agriculture project it's in nepal and malawi and um, what we do is work with agribusinesses, so this is funded by SCDO. we work with agribusinesses in um, Nepal and Malawi who source their produce from smallholders. So like we might work with like a, a cheese factory or something and, in Nepal and um, we fund them to improve their processes and improve their business so that they can sell more cheese and when they can sell more cheese they can afford to expand their operations and buy more milk from the smallholder farmers that they source from so it's meant to be a win-win situation all around Um, smallholder farmers increase their income uh, the business expands they can maybe even hire more people to help them run the business and Nepali people get cheese that isn't imported so um yeah it's it's meant to be that kind of win-win situation but that's just a description of one of the projects i'm doing but that's one approach is called a market systems development approach that's the UK government is using and a lot of donors worldwide to be honest so yeah
1: are you um optimistic about development work like is it is it going well
2: um hmm I think I don't think it's failing on purpose mm-hmm I don't think it's even necessarily failing because we've got quite strict um, performance indicators to go by, and if you hit them, then you hit them, and that's all. But I don't think we're bringing around transformational change, and that's another buzzword that donors like to use: transformational change. That you know, you do something small, and you kickstart a whole process, and and that small thing is cheap, but that whole process like happens on its own, so you don't have to pay anything, and this is meant to be like good value for money. Um, It doesn't work like that, obviously, because that's extremely wishful thinking. Mm. Um, But I do think that we are stuck in these kind of archaic systems which are designed to uphold certain kinds of interests, political, economic, you know, whatever. And um, as a like a TLDR, I would say I would agree with our masters in that international aid does kind of entrench inequality more than fixing it. It does not make the world a more equal place. It's entirely 100 percent political which means that... Oh, actually, I'll tell you something interesting. I was talking to a Ugandan consultant the other day who works on market systems development approaches like the program that I just told you. Um, And she was talking about this thing called donor fatigue. So donors often all target the same place at once, and it means that they all duplicate their work because they don't work together. They're all fighting to be the biggest player in this particular area or in this particular sector. And... um, that means that so like every single donor say this random this market system development project that we've been talking about in this cheese um factory every single donor the uk government the us government the eu who has had to who has wanted to run this um kind of project in this country goes to the same like 10 cheese businesses in the whole place because (laughs) the whole point is there's not many cheese businesses so they want to develop the cheese business to make it stronger and that means that these cheese businesses are really tired of different donors coming to them with money and forcing them to go through very strict monitoring, reporting, due diligence obligations, uh, which are all attached to receiving public money. They have to track, justify how they spend every single penny. So this cheese factory owner has done like 17 projects with eight different donors and some have worked and some haven't. And he's sick of doing all this fine grain accounting just to get a thousand pounds for like, an extra cow or something. I don't know how much cows cost. But um, yeah, I mean, honestly, this Ugandan consultant was talking about this and one of the most intelligent and experienced people I've had the pleasure of talking to in this industry. Um, And things like that, donors don't think about because it's not Mm. on their radar. And I think through that, you really see the intentions behind development projects. It's not a global solidarity framework to change the world. It is about governments going out and securing their interests and trying to seek influence, basically. And um, you know, it doesn't mean that what the work is being that's being done is bad. It just means that it's political. Yeah. As long as you accept that, then I think you can accept working in development. And that's just what I've had to do because you know uh, it's not different from anything else. Everything is political. Business is political. You know, it's just development which claims so strongly to be apolitical is the opposite of that and I think it's good for everyone to know that. (laughs) Yeah
1: to demystify it that it isn't like this altruistic like world peace you know you could even like dissect all of their sustainable development goals and find that some of them have some sort of like western motive in in themselves you know what I mean. Yeah absolutely. Um, I was gonna ask why there wasn't like a unified, like, world front on these things. But you answered that question. And it kind of made me sad, The answer. But you're
2: right. Um, I mean, they try. I don't know if they try or whether they pretend to try because the Sustainable Development Goals, the UN Sustainable Development Goals, um, they're, God, I should know how many there are. I think there are 18. And that's a kind of pretense, I think, or even things like the Paris Agreement and global... um, meetings which don't do much but you know pretend to unite the world and at the end of the day all these countries have their own interests and don't all want to unite the world necessarily um yeah it's kind of sad but yeah I
1: was just thinking of another example about interests and I remember reading about USAID and their relationship with like sex education abroad and Mm -hmm. how they kind of stopped funding I will fact check this again before I publish (laughs) it. But um, they were like stopping abortions or something. Something along those sorts of lines. Basically, whatever they were going to fund, Mm. it was like too anti-Christian for them to do it. So they were like, we're going to scrap it. But the aid that was being used was being used like mostly to protect women in some way. And they were just like,
2: Mm. no, that's
1: not in alignment with our like American values. So we're not going to do it anymore.
2: Yeah, no that's it's so common unfortunately. And I I because there's a lot of these organizations that are actually faith-based like Christian Aid and um mm. Release services. Um there was a the Catholic Relief Services runs a really cool looking fellowship that I was looking at. I don't qualify for it yet, but um I also thought like what do I think about working for a faith-based organization? Um and I was discussing this with my colleague actually because sometimes we partner with faith-based organizations because churches have a level of penetration into communities that other other forms of organization just don't mm. like everyone in certain countries and in certain like places goes to a place of worship and churches with their like historical roots years and years and years back and I'm sure it's the same with like mosques and stuff um, they play a real center of like charity and they've historically been linked to charity as well so to some extent you do have to work for them work with them um and some organizations are probably better than others at imposing their own values because i know i looked at the catholic release services and one of the main questions is oh do you have to be catholic or christian to work for this and they said no um you just have to be okay with working for a faith-based organization so it's like i haven't looked into it i wonder if they do anything like related to sexual health and contraception yeah. It very interesting to see their like stand on that but um at the end of the day, all organisations have values that they impose, whether that's liberal democracy or Jesus. like
1: <laughs> <laughs> The two pillars of moral values.
2: <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't know, maybe maybe church is the way to go in some cases. And, you know, I've, there's a lot that I admire about having that bastion in the community that we've lost in the modern world. But, um, yeah, I would I would have my reservations about it still, as I would have reservations about literally any organisation that works in development. so. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. This is a big pivot, but I just thought of it, and I really want your opinion on it. And we That's will right. get back. But I um I saw this thing on Twitter, and it was someone saying that um that the US has is so culturally new that they center their like national identity, personality around capitalism. And I thought it was interesting. I didn't want to think if I agree or don't, but I'd be interested to hear
2: your opinion on it. It strikes a chord, definitely, mm. because that's the whole American dream: it's social mobility, mm-hmm. it's climbing to the top, it's working hard, setting up your business, like working from pulling up your, what's the phrase, uh, bootstraps, something yeah. to do with bootstraps, and and working your way to the top, which is um, the the foundational myth of capitalism, I would say, and it's like contradictory, it's contradictory, but yeah, it's it's so fundamental to the American dream, which I think a lot of people still believe in, so
1: yeah actually but. we didn't actually touch on neoliberalism or like capitalism at all oh man I can't believe we didn't I <laughs> you right and I don't think I've spoken about it yet on the podcast really but okay. I'm very anti-neoliberal
2: mm-hmm.
1: um and I'm definitely not like like I'm very com- I can very confidently say that yeah um, but uh <laughs> but are all development approaches neoliberal would you say and also can you tell everyone what neoliberalism is
2: god um uh, I'm not prepared to define neoliberalism (laughs) because I don't want to screw it up because so many people have butchered it but um sorry what was your first question I'll answer that first is is a development approaches like neoliberal or I think that's really interesting because I thought there would be a lot more explicitly neoliberal than they are yeah but at the same time I'm not completely surprised because neoliberalism was definitely a thing of the 80s and I think people have Realized that it is not as shiny as it seems. Yeah. And there's been, there's definitely been, been pivots. And that's not to say it's not free market oriented, it absolutely is. But for example, one of the projects that I am um, bidding for explicitly says that um, it's an agriculture project and it's basically working to um, create jobs in agriculture to improve the productivity of agriculture which ultimately means that less people have to work in agriculture and therefore they will move towards the cities mm-hmm. um, and set up like, and move into industrial jobs manufacturing. That's not that neoliberal. Yeah. <laughs> That's about, it's about structural transformation. It's, about, um, it's not about the free market. It's about just moving things along towards industrial productivity. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um,
2: so I was quite surprised to see that, actually. Um, but yeah, at the same time, I think there are so many different donors with so many different um, motives that it is just hard to say. Yeah, And I do think that we've kind of diverted away as well from the industrial approach because of climate change. So mm. a lot of different ways that aid is going to developing countries is through things like climate finance. So private investors will invest in something which has a social good to it and it might be de-risked so basically they might get some money to cushion their fall if, if the investment doesn't work out by public money so um there's lots of lots of technical things i could go into about like public private partnerships and blended finance um but yeah it's not i think it's simplistic to call it neoliberal basically um and you definitely like the impact of neoliberalism on the history of aid on the trajectory of development as a as a function in the world um, has been has been massive but um, it's definitely diversified and it's it's more complex than I think just something neoliberal um, because I think we're beyond that point and we've got to be more analytical as well we've got to like delve more into what exactly it means
0: Um,
2: so neoliberalism I'm gonna read out a definition um Marker-oriented reform policies such as eliminating price controls, deregulating capital markets, lowering trade um, barriers, and reducing, especially through privatization and austerity, state influence in the economy. I think that's the main thing. So um, state intervention in the economy. um, Neoliberals want much, much less of it. So they want free market reforms. And that's what they did in the 1980s. And we could go very much into detail on this because this is all we learned for a year, is it not, Becky? Yeah. I mean, <laughs>
1: honestly, I can't read anything to, to do with developments until, like, I see structural adjustment programme. I'm like, there yeah, it is! Yeah. There <laughs> it is! <laughs> and
2: honestly, I think it's more niche than we were led to, we really? to believe. Is it? It's not niche, but I think um, people, other other economists focus on them a lot less than ha Chang, but, you know, <laughs> Chang is our bay, so it's okay. Like, <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, um do you want to should we go i don't know if people will be interested by this point in structural adjustment No, i think I, it is really interesting actually yeah um
2: oh god okay uh so <sighs> structural adjustment policies That god I, i'm i feel like i'm revising <laughs> um, there were debt crises there are a lot of debt crises the latin american debt crisis um the african debt crisis like just lots lots of debt crises basically um a lot of countries in the global south had borrowed a lot of country borrowed a lot of countries <laughs> borrowed a lot of money from countries in the global north the us uk whatever one day they defaulted they can't pay anything back so countries in the global north offer to bail out countries in the global south but within a very limited set of conditions they are in, they are forced to open their borders so They buy, they are forced to buy. I feel like I'm really butchering this. There was one point I could just, it it could just roll off the tongue. Um, They
1: They were just set to loads of conditions
2: in order to receive aid. And all these conditions are very like neoliberal. Yes, basically they were forced into free trade, forced into opening their borders um, and prevented from investing in their own economies. That is, that's a really key thing. So they were stripped of any right to um, develop their own manufacturing potential, so in, invest in things like local industry, which meant that instead of, say, producing their own clothes, they had to buy things from from the US or the UK, which was very expensive for them. But because they didn't have their own money and they were not allowed to invest by these structural adjustment policies, they were just they basically just dug themselves into a hole. Um, so yeah, there's structural adjustment policies. It's <laughs> a lasting legacy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's definitely, it's influenced the development trajectory of all of these countries very, very strongly. And you can read a lot more eloquent words on this by other people.
1: <laughs> and if anyone ever wants to reach out to me about microfinance, I could talk for hours about microfinance. So <laughs> I'm gonna save it here for the interest of time, but reach out maybe yes. to say as well will you talk about microfinance with people uh yeah but I think you know more I think I just became obsessed with it <laughs> go to
2: Becky go to Becky
1: yeah okay. um and to kind of to move on a bit what do you see the future of like development work aid study looking like um and how do I wanted to ask as well how do grassroots organizations play into this because I don't think they've, they, they're highlighted enough in kind of like development trajectories.
2: Okay, interesting. Um, I'm going to ask that, that question first. I, I can't speak for all different types of grassroots organisations, and I only really have experience with a limited number in India.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, in India, they've played a really, really fundamental role. Yeah. Because uh, with the liberalisation of the Indian economy in 1992, I want to say, Um, India stopped investing in its own capacity for things like uh, food, uh, education, uh, health and what's happened in India is that these grassroots organisations which is uh, NGOs, community organisations, self-help groups have filled in the gap of the state. So there are a lot of people who survive because of NGOs because of community self-help groups and because of not because of the state they can they have a level of penetration a bit like churches in Africa or something that the state just they just can't access. So in that way I think we have a lot to thank grassroots organizations for but they're often as you said Becky cuz I didn't even mention them they're often just brushed right. to the side. Um, But no, I think that they're completely fundamental, not just in terms of um, fulfilling people's basic needs, but also in terms of activism. Um, A lot of the most fundamental activism in the world, like the most important uh, activism in the world has come from the grassroots. And I think it's really, really important to pay um, due respect to it. And your other question, uh, what is the future of development work, aid and study? Um, It's going in... I think if you step back a bit and forget the idea that development is meant to change the world, because let's be honest as <laughs> well, it's going in really interesting directions. Mm. And um, working in development is really exciting because it is influenced and changed so quickly depending on what is happening in the world. So even, you know, like some Ugandan minister saying that he doesn't believe in climate change will potentially influence, you know, the UK government's attitude towards sending money to Uganda. So things can happen that quickly and the, the government can say like, you know what, it will look really bad to send money to Uganda right now. Let's divert this £3 million to Zambia or mm-hmm. something. And we have to respond um, to, because of public image and because of various government priorities to what is happening in the world. So as everyone knows, um, I hope, um, there's a war going on in Ukraine and it's having terrible effects, not just in Ukraine, but knock-on effects for the rest of the world. Um, UK, Ukraine is a big source of fertilizer and wheat, and because of the shortage, because obviously Ukraine can't send out fertilizer and wheat right now, they've got other priorities, um, that is causing price rises all over the world. So um, yeah, it's setting inflation to crazy high levels, and um, that means that we have to change a lot of the priorities of our project towards uh, preventing food crises. and. Um, maintaining food security so uh, we're looking at um, you know how to produce these things in country how to help people out with the prices how to you know cut costs and um, it's it's very it's not hands-on because I'm sitting here in Edinburgh very far away from where the work is happening but it's It's very responsive and you have to think on your feet, especially being in the consultancy part of it, because things in government move very slowly and things on the ground are on the ground. You're very far from where all the decisions are being made. But being in the middle is quite exciting because you, I don't know, you you bridge that gap. So, yeah, I think um, development has always and will always be very responsive to these kind of things. But also, um, obviously, it's moving towards a strong focus on climate change. And not just that, but it's moving towards leveraging private investments rather than just relying on grant funding from big donors like governments. So that basically means that instead of just giving money, we're realizing that there's not enough public money to make the change necessary to prevent climate change. So we are trying to mobilize private investor money from people who don't usually invest in like do good things towards mm. projects that will help fight climate change. So that's another interesting thing because, you know, on one hand, why are we trying to help investors profit from things that they shouldn't be profiting from? Mm. But on the other hand, there is just not enough money to um, in in the government or in charities and foundations and stuff to change the world. So That's a new angle that we're taking. It's quite interesting working with this whole different um, type of person, type of actor in the development space.
1: I think you should just call Elon Musk up and be like, excuse me, sir, (laughs) Uh, money is needed.
2: (laughs) Stop buying Twitter. (laughs) You could actually help people. Honestly, Elon Musk gives a lot of money. So does Jeff Bezos. It's just because they earn so much more yeah <laughs> it's a tiny proportion of their wealth absolutely t- tiny but at the same time if you look at the data on global climate philanthropy they are both right at the top yeah
1: yeah, yeah. it's interesting isn't it but yeah. crazy another debate oh, billionaires are a debate for another day for oh, yeah, sure <laughs> um, um if people want to reach out and have any questions where can they find you if you're accessible you don't have to be
2: um, I can be accessible on Instagram, I guess. Uh, I'm not a huge social media person, but, um, zay.shende, um, that will be somewhere
1: accessible. It will be. I will tag it. And it's with the J, not a Z. Yes. yes, indeed. But it says that in your, like, names. Yeah, it names and they names. pronounce A. Yeah, just look out for that. I remember, like, the first week of Cambridge, everyone was like, J? And you're like, <laughs> no, that's not my name.
2: Yep. yeah, you just got to stick it out
1: yeah perfect well thank you so so much this has been super interesting and you are as bright as ever
2: oh this has
1: been so fun actually i was quite nervous but it's just been chatting to you like old times becky thank you for listening to another episode of i've never had an original thought with me becky lee if you liked this episode please go and rate it five stars wherever you're listening because that makes me smile That's it. It makes me smile. Um, And you can also follow me on at not an OG thought pod. So at N-O-T-A-N-O-G thought pod. And yeah, that's really it. I will speak to you next week and have a lovely week. Perfect. Okay. See you. Bye.